0: Dripping down science. The Naked Scientists.
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 5th of June. Welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. With
2: me, Dave Ansell.
1: And also joining us from the Naked Astronomy podcast, nakedscientist.com slash astronomy, is Dominic Ford. Hello, Dominic. Hi, Chris. Now, this week, we're answering your science questions, including what would you see at the edge of the universe? Assuming you can get there, of course. How can a single speaker play so many different sounds all at the same time? And how do our eyes have this anti-shake system built into them that stops the world looking fuzzy
2: when we move around? And in this week's science news, an update on the E. coli situation in Europe. What is this new bug? Where did it come from? And evolving technology, a DNA-based computer that can calculate the square root of any number up to 15. Thank you, Dave.
1: So
3: if you have any questions for us, do get in touch now. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, that's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at the naked scientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Dominic Ford. And we begin, as ever, with a look at some of this week's top scientific stories.
2: Dave. Making very big headlines at the moment is an outbreak of a new strain of E. coli in northern Germany. It's thought to stem from contaminated salad vegetables including cucumbers. The infection is caused by a more pathogenic form of the bacteria causing hemolytic uremic syndrome or HUS which damages the kidneys and nervous system and can actually be fatal. So far about 2,000 people in Europe have been infected with at least 17 deaths. Chris this is your field could you tell us a bit more about what's happening? Well, first of all, we've probably never seen this form of E. coli before, Um,
1: so it's almost certainly new. It's designated E. coli 0104, and this is just a system of numbers and letters that's used to refer to the biochemical markers which are on the surface of the bug, which is a convenient way of labelling it, for want of a better term. Um, It first cropped up in Germany Late last month, when it was linked to an outbreak of a form of gastroenteritis that was particularly characterised by people losing blood with the motions. So that, first of all, rang alarm bells. And then when the numbers really began to climb, public health officials got involved and began to trace where this may have stemmed from and also what the causative organism was. And it turned out to be this form of E. coli. There's E. coli in the guts of pretty much everything on Earth. But some forms of E. coli tool themselves up genetically and they have this arsenal of molecular weapons that they can throw at us. And this particular strain appears to have some additional genes that enable it to produce a toxin that damages the kidneys and can lead to blood cells breaking down and that's the hemolytic uremic syndrome bit of it. And so it's an unusual form of E. coli, where it came from though still not entirely known.
3: You said this was an entirely new strain of E. coli. How could a new strain come about?
1: Well, the really clear answer to that comes from the secrets which lurk in its genome because you can unpick in a sort of detective way the origins of things by asking genetically, who are your relatives? And so what scientists have done is to send samples of this particular organism over to the Beijing Genomics Institute, BGI, which is one of the biggest genomics sequencing facilities in the world. And they have picked their way through all 5.2 million genetic letters that make up this bug and they've begun to look at what the genetic sequence is and who in terms of microbiologically who this organism is related to and the interesting story that's emerged is about 93 percent of the genes are direct relatives from a form of e coli which has been linked to causing diarrheal outbreaks in certain parts of africa but seven percent of the genome has been linked to um, a form of e coli which makes toxins and in particular toxins called shiga toxins and these toxins are nasty When the bug initially locks onto the wall of the intestine it produces this toxin which oozes into the bloodstream and the toxin has two parts to it, a subunit A and a subunit B and the subunit A behaves a bit like a molecular grappling hook. It goes round in the bloodstream until it finds this structure which is on the kidney which it can bind to, and it locks on, and this then helps the subunit B to crawl inside the cells, where it disables the cell's ability to make proteins, which are effectively the recipes that cells need to keep them alive, and this causes the cells to die. This triggers inflammation, it also causes blood cells to begin to cling to the wall of the blood vessel and break down, that's the hemolysis bit, so you get a combination of kidney damage and blood cells breaking down, the hemolysis and in a small minority of people this can be sufficiently severe that they unfortunately die which is what we've seen this time so it looks like it's a sort of a mix and match between a form of the bug from overseas and some other forms of the
2: bug which we know exist in nature. This seems a very specific piece of evolution to actually attack our kidneys in this way. Is there any advantage to the bug because killing its host seems like a really bad idea? Well it's not universally fatal as you can see we think about 2,000 people have been infected
1: with of this new strain of E. coli since the outbreak began... And interestingly, the outbreak, we think now, there's some evidence emerged this evening, researchers are tying this to uh, a festival that happened early in May, 6th, 7th of May, uh, in the port of Hamburg. And they think that perhaps the mass gathering of people there eating some kind of contaminated foodstuff, probably salad vegetables, may have spawned the outbreak. Um, the reason that this bug is able to do this is that humans aren't the natural host of these organisms that cause this particular syndrome. In fact, they probably come from farm animals. Farm animals don't have the molecular target for the toxin that we do. So they can carry these things perfectly harmlessly to them and it comes out in their manure and if you use that manure to fertilise your food crops, your salad vegetables, your tomatoes and whatever to make them grow very well, the bugs that are carried can then get into the food. And one of the other things that stemmed from this piece of research being done in Beijing is that apart from being able to make the toxins, this particular form of E. coli also has some genes that make it stick better to the cells of the intestine and possibly also to the cell in things like lettuce and tomatoes, in other words, to survive better in those environments. And because salad items aren't really cooked or boiled, you usually eat them raw, unless you peel the thing and peel the bug off the surface, then it's probably on the surface, even in tiny numbers, and a small dose is an infectious dose with this particular organism. Dominic?
3: Yes, well, a group of Scandinavian researchers led by Goran Sharma of Stockholm University have uncovered some clues about how sunspots stay warm. Now sunspots appear as dark blotches on the surface of the sun, and they're regions where its surface is slightly cooler than elsewhere. Now most of the sun's surface is warmed by convection currents beneath the surface, which carries the energy which is formed by fusion reactions in the centre of the sun up to the surface and keep its surface warm as it's radiating away the energy that we see. And what we think happens in a sunspot is that you have very strong magnetic fields opposing those convection currents and that means this energy can't get up to replenish the energy on the surface. So you get a cooler spot? You get a slightly cooler spot and we're talking about 3,000 to 4,500 degrees C as compared to 6,000 degrees C for the rest of the sun's surface.
1: And that's why it looks darker because it's cooler?
3: That's why it looks darker but there's a bit of a puzzle because even at 3,500 degrees C that's red hot so these regions are still radiating away energy So something needs to be sustaining them at those temperatures. Why don't they cool further? So what Sharma and his colleagues have found is evidence that there's not actually no convection beneath the sunspot, there's just much weaker convection beneath the sunspot. There's still some energy getting up to the surface. Now, how we normally recognise convection on the surface of the sun is through the characteristic patterns of updrafts and downdrafts that it creates, which are called convection cells and it's rather similar to if you take a pan of boiling water and you pour peas in, and you look at the surface of that pan and you see the peas moving around. The reason why we've historically thought that sunspots don't have any convection is that we don't see those patterns. There's no evidence for convection. But what Sharma has managed to do is actually look beneath the surface of the sun, and he's done that by looking at a very specific spectral line of neutral hydrogen, which is only produced... Sorry, neutral carbon, which is only produced at very high temperatures... And the surface of the sun isn't hot enough to produce that line, but deeper down, the sun can produce that line. So if you see it, you're you're probing beneath the surface.
1: So you can use that to trace the flow of material, and dissect away what's coming into the sunspot versus what's already resident there.
3: That's right. And Sharma's not only detected this line at the edges of sunspots; he's also detected there's a very strong blue shift, which means this material is moving towards us very fast, at about a kilometer per second. And that means this material must be rising up through the sun, so that must be being driven by convection. And that's the first time we found evidence of convection beneath sunspots.
1: So you've got these sunspots, which are overall cooler spots, but they're still being fired up and kept warm by lots of little convection currents rising into them in, in places, keeping the surface at a higher temperature than it otherwise would be. That's right, yes. What about other impacts of those sunspots? It's nice to know how they work, but they do have onward impacts on Earth, don't they, because of solar mass ejections and also there's an 11-year cycle on the sun of these spots and solar activity, which has been linked to climate effects.
3: That's right. There is an 11-year cycle by which sunspots appear and then they disappear and the sun is very quiet for a period of months. And we know that the sun's luminosity is very tightly correlated with how many sunspots there are on the surface. The more sunspots there are, the more energy the sun is producing. We don't understand why that is, but we've observed that to be the case. And obviously that impacts how much energy the Earth is receiving from the sun, and so we would expect that to influence our climate.
1: Thank you, Dominic. And talking of climate change, um, it is a proven fact that if you elevate the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere which we also think is linked to climate change, this will have the effect of acidifying the sea because carbon dioxide, when it dissolves, forms carbonic acid. And this acidification, it turns out, can change the way that fish react to the world around them. Now, Dr Steve Simpson, who's from Bristol University, has been looking at how this affects the ability of fish to sense the sound of danger.
4: My research over the last decade has focused on the behaviour that coral reef fish show when they're um, looking to seek habitat after a period of a few days of developing out at sea in the plankton. So these are very young coral reef fish seeking the habitat that they'll spend the rest of their lives on. My interest has been particularly on the importance of auditory cues. So this is sounds produced by animals on the coral reef that the small larvae can detect and move towards and use to pick specific habitats. Recent research that's been coming out over the last couple of years has demonstrated that fish that experience ocean acidification lose their natural sense of smell, which is the other cue that fish use to detect uh, reef habitat. So the question that I was interested in, in testing is whether the sense of hearing is unaffected by ocean acidification and so would be able to compensate for this loss of sense of smell or whether hearing is also impacted on by ocean acidification. So what
1: was the experimental technique? What did you actually do and what fish did you test?
4: We worked with clownfish. Uh, Clownfish are um, similar to Nemo, are uh, readily available through the um, aquarium trade. They can be bred in captivity. So for scientists this is great because it means that we can actually work with the embryos and larval stages of these fish. So we took um, uh, embryonic clownfish and as soon as they hatched, we put them into different treatments of water that were either based on today's CO2 environment, we bubbled air into the tanks, or based on different predictions for the CO2 environments of the later in the century. So we had three treatments where we bubbled in what we're expecting the atmosphere to be like in 2050, and then two different scenarios for 2100. Um, and these were based on scenarios uh, from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we reared our fish through the larval stage in these different CO2 environments, and then we took the fish and put them into an auditory choice chamber, which was in the lab, so it was a long tube facing towards a speaker, and we allowed the fish to move around in this choice chamber while we played sounds to them, and we monitored their behaviour.
1: What, first of all, would a a normal fish or young fish do under those circumstances when played the sounds of a reef in the way you did?
4: We were running our experiments in the daytime. We used a recording of daytime coral reef noise. And we know from both um, studies following fish out in the open water or from playback experiments that we've run in the past, fish naturally move away from this sound. A coral reef is a dangerous place to encounter for the first time during the daytime because of the high density of predators. And so the noise of all of these predators caused fish naturally to move away from the sound.
1: And what about when you then substituted fish that had been reared in these enhanced CO2 environments? What did they do?
4: So the fish that had experienced high levels or elevated levels of CO2 showed no response to the recordings, so we're equally spending time towards the speaker as well as away from them.
1: Gosh, so that's quite striking, isn't it? Have you any clue as to why they behave like that? How do you know that these fish haven't gone deaf?
4: So it's certainly possible that the fish have gone deaf. There are several potential mechanisms as to what's happened here. So it may be that hearing has been lost, although we did look at the growth of the ear bone, which is a central part of a fish ear. Um, and we found no differences in the shape or the size of the ear bone between the fish from different treatments. But it's still possible that hearing has been impacted on. If it's not hearing that's been impacted, it may then be neural transmission or the processing of information, and the impact could be occurring there. Or it may be that the fish can hear these sounds but loses its natural avoidance behaviour. Either way, I mean, any of those three scenarios would be bad news for the fish in the natural environment.
1: Indeed, but one area where your experiment doesn't really reflect the natural environment is that you took the embryos from a normal situation and then put them into these enhanced CO2 situations for the remainder of their development until you tested them. So that could in itself be quite stressful. So could it just be the fish are responding in a stress-related way and that, in fact, if you were to study their progeny, if you reared fish from embryo to adult and bred from them and then took the progeny and tested them, you might see they were less stressed and therefore less affected in this way.
4: Yeah, so that's a very important question to ask as to whether it it is due to an acute response to CO2 environments or whether the fish through generations have the ability to adapt. That will determine how we think, how we can predict the responses of fish will be through the uh, the next century. What we're seeing is an unprecedented rate of change of the pH of the sea, so it's occurring 100 times faster than any time in the last 650,000 years. And so we're expecting that fish, if they can adapt, will be doing it in a period of only a few tens of generations through the century, and that really is a focus of the lab of my collaborator, Professor Philip Monday, who is now working with multiple generations to look at the rate of ability to adapt.
1: And what do you think the implications are, therefore, of what you've found?
4: Well, the implications, if they are, um, uh, are that fish lose their sense of hearing or their natural responses to sound are detrimental, certainly, to fish, in that fish live in a very auditory world. So they use sound to communicate, to detect and avoid predators, to find their own shoal mates, and also to detect uh, potential prey items. So there there would be some fairly detrimental impacts on fish populations. We don't know whether this impact would be seen across the board in terms of different fish species, and that's the focus of our research now to start to look at the the variability of response between species. And I think also an interesting question is how variable is the response within a species? Because it may be that every fish needs to adapt or that there are some rare fish that already have more tolerance that would then have that ability through selective sweeps in the population to be able to keep pace with change.
1: So if fish do go deaf, then it's no more back to my place for some drum and bass, Bass. Whatever. Was Steve Simpson, he's from Bristol University, with that rather sobering finding. You can find that research published this week in the journal Biology Letters. Dave,
2: The largest ever DNA computer has been built recently. The overwhelming majority of computing today is done with transistors and computer chips. Um, but there are a few other tactics which are being tried. One is using DNA. It can famously encode information. It stores information about how to build a person or an animal. And it's a chemical, so in reactions it can do operations on this data. In the long run, they've been proposed as a way of solving some problems, which are very slow to do with a normal computer. Because although a DNA computer probably does calculations very slowly, DNA molecules are exceedingly small, so it could do a huge number of these calculations all at the same time. But we haven't quite reached that point yet. Eric Winfrey and Lulu Quan have built a system of DNA molecules that interact with one another in lots of different reactions. DNA is a double helix, two spiral molecules, relatively weakly bonded to one another. Two DNA molecules can only connect to one another if they have corresponding codes. And if only half of um, one molecule corresponds um, with half of another molecule, they'll sort of they can kind of zip together, but leaving the other two ends free, which can then go on to react with something else. By encoding inputs as a presence or absence of a molecule, a pair of these reactions can give outputs of other molecules and behave like any conventional logic gate. Computers are made of logic gates, so with enough reactions you can build a computer. So far, they've built a system of 130 DNA molecules, which can do a calculation. They've managed to find the closest integer to the square root of any number up to 15. And the reaction takes about 10 hours.
1: So, hang on a minute, just to clarify this a bit. Uh, So... How do you type a calculation in? You just drop in some molecules which are the right ones to tell your DNA computer this is the calculation I want you to do. Yeah, they sort of basically encode
2: the number um, in a four-bit number so they encode it with four different uh, molecules and then either the presence or absence of each of these molecules in the reaction will then set off a load of other reactions and end up with four molecules which they actually make glow so they can then see which of the four or eight molecules coming out are glowing or not glowing and they can work out what the answer was. Does this scale? Because you've said you can do square roots of numbers up to 15, so if you wanted to go beyond that... How many more molecules are you going to need? I mean, they certainly can scale and they could get it a lot more complicated than this. They've essentially built the infrastructure so they can do more complicated calculations. But it's not, it doesn't look like it's going to be competing with a normal computer anytime soon. But it could still be very useful because there are some times when you might want to do logic on a very small scale, on a chemical scale. So if, for example, you wanted to do a test and only produce a result if, say, three different bits of DNA were available, then it could do a little bit of logic and then give a result. Or if you wanted to only release one reactant when the first two or three stages of the reaction have gone past, you can then sort of code that into the DNA computer, then it will chuck out some more reactant and the reaction can carry on. And they're also suggesting that life is a kind of a complicated system of interacting reactions. So you may even be able to learn something quite fundamental about life by studying these kind of systems. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave boggles the mind.
1: Now, talking of computing, computer scientists at Cambridge University have come up with a way to make mobile phones work more intuitively in future. And with us to explain what they're actually doing is Daniel Wagner, who's one of the team behind the work. Hello, Daniel. Hello. He's actually here in person to tell us about it. So what is the problem, first of all, that you've been trying to solve? What's the challenge?
5: Right. So we've been trying to figure out what people do with their smartphones, because if you want to make better phones, then you need to know what people do with them now. Don't but, we already know that then? Well, this is not really well known because handset manufacturers may be um, conducting studies, but they don't publish this data. And also, usually these studies are relatively small scale. And mobile operators know what calls you make, but um, they don't know what happens offline. And so, for example, which apps you use or when you charge your phone. So um, what we could do, for example, if the phone is charged um, for short amounts of time, every couple of hours, for example then um, we could have a battery that charges quickly and um, may, for example, take a long time to charge fully, but it would still work if we have this kind of pattern present.
1: I get it. So that's the challenge. That's the problem. How have you set out to solve it?
5: Right. Um, So we created an application for Android smartphones. It's called Device Analyzer, and it runs in the background while you use your phone, and it collects statistics of what you do. Okay. Um, So what's it monitoring? How's it doing that? It is basically monitoring anything you could, you could think of. So when you charge your phone, for example, or when you open an application. And so we can get some really interesting data from this. So, for example, assume that you're in a meeting and your phone rings. So what you do is you're going to turn the phone off, you're going to reject the call and put it to silent. And then from this, we can infer that the phone was not even supposed to ring in the first place. And this is some data that no one else could possibly get because they either only have your phone records or they know what you did offline.
1: So you collect all this data, it goes into, what, a central database at the university, presumably, where you mass thousands of call informations from phones together.
5: Um, What are you going to do with this information? So um, first, before we upload it, what's important is that we um, strip personally identifying information from this so that the people can can give us, for example, a record that a phone call has happened, but we don't necessarily know who was called. So that's important for the people to know. And then we can do aggregate analysis on this big data set and find out patterns in, that only um, emerge when you look at a big amount of people.
1: And you're going to release this into the public domain, aren't you?
5: Yes, that is true. So we give people um, three months to take a look at all the data that we collect about them And if they're happy with this and give us their consent, then we'll release it into the public domain and give it to other researchers. How do people have a go if they want to have a go at
1: the application to participate and help you with the research?
5: Right. The application is available for download on the Android Marketplace right now. It works on any Android phone and um, you can just download it and it will sit quietly in the background.
1: And if you'd like to help Daniel with his research, we've also made it easy for you to get hold of a copy of it. If you go to nakedscientist.com slash and that's analyzer with an S, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-R, then it will take you to a download option and you can get hold of a copy of that Android app. And it will then begin to spot what you do with your phone in an anonymous way and help Daniel with his research. Maybe you'll come back and give us an update later on, on what you find. When do you think you'll have enough numbers
5: to be able to tell us what you're seeing? Oh, I think within a couple of months we shall have plenty of data.
0: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists.
1: And it's Chris Smith, it's Dominic Ford and Dave Ansell. we answering all your science questions for you this week on our Q&A show. And uh, Dominic's up first. Hello, Dominic. Hiya. Dominic, talk to Dominic and Dave. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be careful, we've got too many Dominics. So where, where oh, are you, no, where I are you Dominic?
6: Um, I'm in Nottingham at the moment. I've just uh, finished my exams for my first year at uni. What are you studying? Uh, neuroscience.
1: Ooh, tough stuff. So you'll have been interested in sort of the DNA computer, being as the Absolutely. brain is sort of effectively yeah, a the no, DNA certainly. computer.
6: Um, as an amateur musician, kind of something I've always struggled to work out is basically how, particularly in a more basic speaker setup, where you can often have... Only a single cone. This one diaphragm is able to vibrate at so many different frequencies at any one time in order to reproduce the full frequencies of the sound.
1: Oh, so you've got this lovely speaker sitting in your living room. You play music <laughs> into it and you have one, or or if it's a stereo pair, pair of speakers. Yeah. One cone, amazing complex soundscape coming out of one cone. Dave, Absolutely. what are you looking
2: OK, if the speaker was to produce a single frequency, let's think, think what that actually means. It means that the speaker is moving backwards and forwards and causing the air to move backwards and forwards in a sine wave pattern. So you've probably seen a sine wave. It's basically just a kind of a very specific zigzaggy, wiggly line. Now, if the speaker moves in any other pattern than that, say you could imagine it's moving on slowly with a big um, wiggle, and then on top of that, superimposed, it has a little wiggle. So it's moving in and out slowly, but on top of that, it's kind of vibrating a little bit. So then it would be um, outputting sound with the low frequency, the big slow wiggle, and also a much higher frequency as well at the same time because the way sound works is you can superimpose the motion of this speaker, you can superimpose lots and lots of different vibrations, and that will produce sounds of lots and lots of f- frequencies all at the same time by just making the right pattern for the speaker to move backwards and forwards. It's not moving a smooth wiggle, it's moving, doing something incredibly complicated, and that's a mixture of lots of different frequencies. So let's make some more wiggles. Dominic, was that uh, satisfactory?
6: That's quite interesting, actually, the way it's kind of... So it's all just kind of composite of the vibrations all happening at the... Same time, yeah. And
1: if you use the fancy software that we do to edit audio and that kind of thing, you can actually see this. So you see a waveform, and then you'll see the other little waves superimposed in the big waves, like Dave was saying. It's really quite elegant. Um, now a little bird tells me you have another question, which is actually sort of Dominic's neck of the woods.
6: Ah, yes. Um, but this one's about, um, obviously Olympus Mons on Mars, which I understand is the largest mountain in the solar system. Now, Because you've got, obviously, such a large mass on a planet which is actually relatively small, certainly compared to Earth, does that in any way affect the orbit of Mars by giving it a bit of a wobble or anything like that?
3: It certainly does make Mars wobble on its axis. Olympus Mons is a massive volcano. It's, I think, three times higher than Mount Everest. And what's important when Mars is rotating on its axis is where Mars' centre of mass is. So that's the average point where all of Mars's little bits of mass average towards. And if Mars has a large mass on one side of the planet, then that will knock Mars's centre of mass off the centre of the spherical planet, so it will be rotating off a point which is slightly off the centre of the sphere. And that means as it rotates, the sphere will shift slightly in space. It's a bit like having two figure skaters on ice, and one of them's really massive, is, is spherical Mars, and the other one is, is not very massive, and that's the volcano. And as they spin round on the ice, well, the massive figure skater won't move very much, but you'll see a little wobble each time he goes round. Now, that's not quite what we're talking about when we normally talk about volcanoes on the Earth causing a shift in the Earth's axis. Because what we're talking about there is movements of rock, either because volcanoes erupt or because we have earthquakes, and those movements shift the centre of mass of the Earth, and that changes the way in which the Earth rotates.
1: Dominic, thank you. To add to that, and Dominic on the line, thank you very much for phoning in as well. If you would like a good reference on what Dominic was saying, I was very lucky to speak to someone at Harvard a few years ago called Taylor Perron. Who actually did some interesting modelling on this and showed that when the sea would have been on Mars millions of years ago, this ancient ocean, it produced a shoreline. And if you trace the outline of that shoreline today, you see that in some places it's maybe a kilometre higher than other bits of the shoreline, which suggests either that the water had some very strange tidal movements, which seems unlikely, or more likely the surface of Mars has been buckled in some way. And when they modelled it, they found the buckling was directly explained by the migration of Olympus Mons in exactly the way you say, Dominic, pulling the planet's surface to put Olympus Mons on the equator of the planet because of that huge con- aggregation of mass there. Yeah. So it's Taylor Perron, and it was a paper in Nature, I think, from 2006, issue. if you want to look it up, Dominic. A uh, quick one to squeeze in here, Cameron Thompson on Facebook, uh, you can put your question on Facebook, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, if you want to. Uh, he says, what properties of diesel fuel make it ignite simply from piston compression? Well, actually, when you compress air, it gets very, very hot. You're squeezing the air molecules together. You'll get a dramatic rise in temperature. And therefore, you need a fuel that, in fact, can tolerate being... Put to quite a high temperature before it begins to burn, and that's one of the properties of diesel. It's less volatile than petrol. If you put petrol into a diesel engine, then the petrol will burn too quickly and it won't run properly, which is why you mustn't do that. It will actually damage the engine. But diesel, what happens is you compress the air in the cylinder, and just before the piston gets to the very top of the cylinder, you then open the injector and squirt a mist of fuel in. That's called atomization. And the fuel then burns in this very compressed, very, very hot gas the oxygen in the air is fueling that and that then leads to a chemical reaction producing large volumes of carbon dioxide and water and some other partially burnt hydrocarbons this gas takes up a lot more space than the original liquid fuel did maybe expanding by a factor of 600 to 1000 and that expansion drives the piston down in the cylinder again and that's the uh, work stroke which you extract energy from the uh, cylinder by connecting that piston to the crankshaft so you need a choice of fuel which can tolerate being injected at those very high temperatures and not explode petrol will get so hot when you compress it to push it into the cylinder in the first place it will try and burn in the fuel line and that's what does the damage to the engine now dominic here's another one for you mike co uh wants to talk to us about light in the ancient universe hello mike hello good to have you with us what would you like to talk about
7: Um, I want to talk about an article I read on the BBC website the other day um, about a star, the most distant star ever detected um, out on the edge of the the universe. Um, It said that the star exploded 520 million years after the Big Bang and that the light had taken about 13 billion years to get to us. Uh, But what I'm not clear about is that if everything in the universe started at a single point in space, then that would mean the star can only have been 500 million years from us or so 500 million light years from the space we now occupy so why did it take 13 billion years to get to us why didn't it pass us 12 and a half billion years ago and so we just don't see it
3: that's a really good question actually um just just to recap the question is this light was emitted when the universe was an age of half a billion years and so the universe could only at that time have measured a billion light years across And so the greatest distance this object could have been from us is a billion light-years, and that light would only then take a billion years to reach us. And yet we know the universe is 13.8 billion light-years. So why are we seeing this light? And what this boils down to is Einstein's theory of special relativity, which I know sometimes makes a lot of people's head hurt. It sometimes makes my head hurt too. But I'm going to do my best to to explain this. One of the rules of Einstein's theory of special relativity is that moving clocks are said to run slow. So what that means is that if you take a clock and you put it in a fast-moving spacecraft, for example, that clock will appear to run slow. The laws of physics will appear to run slow, so you'll, you'll age more slowly. Everything appears to happen in slow motion. Now, we're very used, obviously, to the fact that there's absolute time. So if I sit here and do nothing for 10 seconds, then you would all agree whether you're moving in a fast car or whether you're sat still at home, that that was 10 seconds. But Einstein's theory says that's not actually the case, and that if you're moving in a fast car, then you would appear to see me in slow motion, and that 10 seconds would be longer for you. So what's happening to this galaxy is that because it's on the other side of the universe, it's moving away from us very fast, and that means we're seeing it in slow motion. It's evolving in slow motion. And so although the galaxy in its frame of reference has only evolved for half a billion years, in our frame of reference that would take about half the current age of the universe to get to that point.
1: What about the other half?
3: And then the other half of that time was spent with the light travelling across the universe from the object to us. And
1: stretching out in the process because the universe is expanding, presumably. That's
3: right, and that's the cosmological redshift.
1: That's why we now detect the light that would have been very, very bright, high-intensity, short-wavelength light has now got a very long wavelength out into the invisible microwave regime um, because it's stretched out in that way.
3: That's right. And the reason that we talk in terms of the age of the object being half a billion years is because obviously we're interested in how far this object has evolved down its evolutionary track, not when it was in the history of the universe that this light happened to be emitted, because that's not very interesting.
1: Dominic, thank you for the clearest explanation I've ever heard for that, which has actually puzzled me for quite a while, actually. Thank you very much, and I hope that answers your question, Mike. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Dominic Ford. We are answering your science questions this week. If you have any for us, our Twitter name is at Naked Scientist. You can tweet at us or Facebook, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook. will get you there. Email is chris at dot com.
0: Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, the naked scientists.
1: And now, although it's a popular conversation topic, it's very tricky to predict English weather. But what about if you wanted to predict the weather in space? Well, Richard Hollingham is just back from a space insurance conference. I didn't know there were such things. That took place in Italy, where space weather forecasting was the hot topic of the day among uh, those who were responsible for operating satellites and insuring spacecraft.
8: I'm walking across a park in the centre of Rome, and, well, the weather is lovely. Clear blue sky, slight wispy clouds a light breeze, but that's only half the story. Richard Horn is here from the British Antarctic Survey. What's going on then beyond the atmosphere, beyond that plane we can see in the sky?
9: Well, we're familiar with the terrestrial weather, but actually out in space we also have weather, so to speak. We call it space weather. It really is driven by variations on the sun. We have the material flowing off of the sun, which we call the solar wind, that flows towards the Earth and that can disrupt technological systems, modern technology.
8: Now, David Wade, you're from Atrium Insurance. Satellites, that's what you're worried about because you insure them. What impact can this stream of charged particles from the sun have?
7: It can have a number of impacts. One of the most obvious ones to think of would be a loss of power. The sun pours out some protons, those protons hit the satellite's solar arrays and the solar arrays are degraded. But you can also get charging, where different parts of the satellite charge up at different rates and an arc forms between the two differently charged parts. And when that arc discharges, it could cause damage to the satellite. And what sort of impact would that have on us Typical impacts could be the loss of communication services, but other aspects such as the GPS system, the navigation system that we've all become so used to these days. We think of it as directing us when we're driving our cars, but it has much wider uses than that. Financial transactions, mobile phone towers, all of those are governed by the timing signals that we get from the GPS system.
8: So potentially you could lose what almost all communications if, if you knocked out, for example, GPS?
7: Absolutely. GPS is a constellation of satellites, so there's numerous satellites up there. So chances are you may not knock all of them out together, but you could certainly get a degraded service. And that could also be a degraded navigation service. You could see the impact on, the, on flights or shipping, which may not be able to dock at, at a particular time. Are we
8: talking here, Richard, about a hypothetical situation, or could this really happen?
9: No, there are examples where this has really happened in the past. If we go back to 2003, there was a very big magnetic storm at the Earth. Something like 47 satellites were reporting malfunctions. One satellite was a total loss. That was a scientific satellite, it was a Japanese one. It cost $640 million, that's a lot of money. And indeed, over the next few years we are expecting a number of magnetic storms to increase. We know that the sun has an 11-year solar cycle, and we usually measure that by the number of sunspots. But in terms of the magnetic storms, we can also measure that at the Earth, and we measure that by the changes in the Earth's magnetic field. And we know that the number of storms is going to increase typically one to two years after the solar maximum, the maximum of the sunspot number. So over the next three to four years, there's going to be a period of increasing risk when storms occur and those storms damage satellites and a variety of other infrastructure. Now you say risk. Can you see those coming? At the moment, it's very unreliable. The best we can do really is to take information from a particular spacecraft called ACE and it measures the magnetic field flowing off of the sun. We can then combine that with computer models and we can try and make a forecast of what's going to happen at the Earth.
8: That's fine, but how far forward can you predict?
9: By taking measurements at pace, we've got something like half an hour to one hour's forecast time. Having said that, once the geomagnetic storm starts, what we've established already is that there's something like a four- to five-day period where satellites are most at risk and trying to determine how long that period would last and then when it will be safe. That's vitally important to operators, particularly if they want to do orbit manoeuvres or upload new software and do other kind of uh, operations. What would you like to do then? We're just starting a new project. It's called Spacecast, and we're going to take data from satellites and we're going to try and generate a forecasting capability. It's an interest for the insurance companies because they want to be reassured that the operators are taking all measures possible to try and reduce the risk of damage and, and loss.
1: Dr Richard Horne from the British Antarctic Survey and David Wade from Atrium Insurance on the impact of space weather on satellites. And you can find more Planet Earth online content at thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. Uh, Got a quick question from uh, Tim Bennett on Twitter who tweets at Naked Scientists. Are there any long-term adverse effects to eating spicy food? Not that we know of, Tim Lots of people across the world eat spicy food for breakfast, lunch and dinner, pretty much That would be my ideal place to live, actually Um, and they don't seem to have any excessive diseases In fact, on the contrary there is evidence that Alzheimer's disease is less common in countries where food contains a lot of turmeric turmeric being a common ingredient in curry and we know that turmeric contains a molecule called curcumin, and curcumin is an antioxidant, and it seems to reduce the production in the brain of beta-amyloid, the stuff that builds up in the brains of people who develop Alzheimer's disease. So eating curry could actually cut your risk of getting um, Alzheimer's disease. Now, Les is on the phone. Hello, Les.
10: Hello. One of the things I wondered is, um, if you put a a pulsed laser up, um, two seconds on, two seconds off, and shine it at the shadow side of mars or if you was there would it go by you as a two seconds on and off because apparently stars you can see them still burning but they don't actually exist now so does the same apply for comparatively short distance
2: okay basically the answer is yes you would see it flashing the only way you wouldn't be able to see it flashing is if somehow the light was getting mixed up between when it was on and when it was off and that would mean that the light getting to you would have to be going through very, very long to through, through different paths which was a, a mixing up and it would have to, and the difference in light goes about three hundred thousand kilometers every second. So if it's two seconds on, two seconds off, then the the different paths the light is travelling in must be at least six hundred thousand kilometers different and then lots of different paths and all mixing up so it mixes up as on it mixes up on and off all the time. The reason why you can see stars um, burning now, even though they might have finished burning already, is just that the light um, has been um, running, basically the light's been travelling for longer than the life that the star had left when it emitted the light, so um, it's travelling for you know, 60 million years, billion years or whatever, and the stars have now just died just in the time it took the light to get to us.
1: It's amazing to think that some of the things you're looking at in the sky no longer exist. Thank you very much, Dave. If you're listening to The Naked Scientists, it's Chris Smith, Dominic Ford, Dave Ansell. We're answering your science questions. If you'd like to get in touch with us, chris at thenakedscientist.com, the Twitter name, at Naked Scientist, to send us the tweet. And heading down under now...
4: Hello, this is Evan from Sydney, Australia. My question is that I've heard it said that bird lungs are more efficient than mammal lungs, and the reason given was something to do with one-way airflow and their hollow bones. It is this true. And where would the air go after it went into their bones?
1: OK, I only discovered how different the respiratory system of birds is when I started to actually teach this to the natural sciences students at the University of Cambridge a few years ago, and it's ingenious what goes on. Now birds need a very efficient respiratory system because they have such high metabolic rates in order to sustain the enormous work output that they do when they fly so how do their chests work well they have a very different system to the lungs that we do we have lungs which are like two pairs of balloons that you blow air into they inflate and then they recoil down blowing the air out again birds have a one-way flow of air through their lungs they don't have tiny air sacs called alveoli like we do they have tiny tubes called air capillaries that the air flows through continuously and the benefit of doing that is that you always have fresh air flowing through the lung maintaining a very high concentration of oxygen up against the bloodstream and therefore you maximise the gradient for diffusion, pushing oxygen into the blood. How do they do this? Well, if you were to dissect a bird, what you would see is they have these combinations of lung tissue, for want of a better word, and air sacs. Now, the air sacs are in various parts of the body. They are called anterior and posterior air sacs as two groups. When the bird breathes in, it moves various bones and muscles in order to increase the volume of these air sacs anteriorly and posteriorly, so they draw air into them. But first of all, the air flows into the trachea and it goes into the posterior air sac. The anterior air sacs, which also increase in volume, they actually get filled up by the air that's already in the bird's lung. So, in other words, they pull air through the lung tissue into that anterior air sac. Then, when the bird breathes out, exhales, it squeezes on these air sacs. This time, the posterior air sac empties into the lung tissue and the anterior air sac empties into the bird's trachea, and then out through its nostrils and its beak. So in this way, you've always got air going in one direction through the lung. It's always fresh air, and therefore you've always got a very high oxygen gradient taking air into the tissue. These air sacs are also making use of spaces inside some of the bird's bones, including its humeruses shoulder bones, and also its vertebrae. And so that means that the bones are very, very light,
2: which the bird needs as an adaptation for flight. That's absolutely fascinating, Chris. I never realised that about birds. I've got another question here for you, Dominic. It's from Shi Hong, and they were wondering, how are photons created in the sun, and how do they get propelled the speed of light towards the Earth?
3: Well, the surface of the sun is very hot, of course. It's so hot that hydrogen becomes ionised into a plasma, so that you have photons and electrons as separate bodies rather than bound together into atoms. And as those different charges interact, they exchange energy at the surface of the sun. And in the process of exchanging energy, they can lose energy, and that is radiated as the photons that we see. Now, that's not actually the powerhouse that drives the luminosity of the sun. That is the fusion of hydrogen atoms into helium, which occurs at the core of the sun, in fact, only in the central 20% or so of the sun. And so you have another process, which is convection, which is carrying that heat which is generated at the centre of the sun up to the surface to keep the surface hot so that it continues to shine.
1: Are there no photons being produced deep inside the sun? Presumably there are, but they just can't get out.
3: Yes, photons are being produced all throughout the sun, but the sun is made of a cloudy material because these protons and electrons can interact with that light And that means that the photons produced deep down can only actually travel a few centimetres before they're reabsorbed. And, of course, Brian Fulton, who was on this programme, he's Professor
1: of Astrophysics at the University of York. I think the point he made was that the photons that get made in the Sun are actually a million years old plus by the time they emerge because they have spent their entire life being bombarded around and absorbed and reabsorbed ad infinitum almost before they finally escape. So if the Sun went out tomorrow, went out as in all reactions stopped, we'd still have a million years worth of light locked away inside.
3: That's absolutely right. The light is travelling at the speed of light, but it's only hopping a few centimetres at the time. And I mean, you don't know what direction it's going to come back out again. It may end up going back to the centre of the sun again. And it takes a million years. It's called a random walk for, for that energy to get to the surface.
0: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Dominic Ford answering all your science questions. Waiting in the wings is Lionel who wants to talk about having your own built-in fuzzy logic system so that when you move, your vision doesn't go all fuzzy. Meanwhile, Dominic, here's one from Neil Hennis for you who says, What would we see at the edge of the universe if we had a warp drive fast enough to get us to the edge of the universe? What would we actually see when we got there?
3: Well, actually, wherever you are in the universe, if you look at the distribution of galaxies and galaxy clusters around you, you will find that the sky looks more or less the same as anywhere else. And that's because you can think of the universe as being a bit like a sphere, only a three-dimensional surface of a sphere. So on a sphere, you can go all the way around and come back to where you started again. The the universe is not a two-dimensional surface. It's a sort of three-dimensional surface of a four-dimensional sphere, if you want to think of it that way. So wherever you are on the surface of that sphere, you've got 13.8 billion light years' worth of of universe that you can see in any direction, full of galaxies and galaxy clusters. Wow.
1: Uh, Well, let's go back down to Earth quite quickly, uh, perhaps with a cold splash, Dave. Uh, Neil J. Thompson asks, why does swimming pool water feel cold even when it's warmer than the air? And I presume he means when you actually get out having acclimatised. I
2: think possibly even when you get in... The thing is that the temperature you feel isn't the temperature of the air or the temperature of the water, it's the temperature of your skin. If your hand is sitting in air, your body is always producing heat quite rapidly. So um, an air is a very bad conductor of heat, so it doesn't take the heat away very fast. So even though the the air might only be 20 degrees centigrade, um, your skin might still be sitting there at 30 perfectly happily. Water is a much better conductor of heat, very high heat capacity. So if you put your hand in even something at 28 degrees centigrade, the surface skin is going to very rapidly get almost to exactly the same temperature as the water, so it will feel colder even though the water is warmer than the air was.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Alison, now I'm going to have to be careful how I say this. She says, hi, I'm Alison Willathgamua, which is easy to say when you break it down into syllables, and she helpfully did that. Thank you. She's in Perth, Western Australia, where she listens to us. She says, I use headphone earbuds for my audio devices and computer. Over time, one side of the earbud will stop working for me, so I buy a new pair. But until I can make it to the department store and replace the broken earbuds, I continue to use the broken ones. But I've noticed that I prefer to have the working earbud in my right ear, and I don't really like listening with my left ear. Why is this? Well, actually, what you've done, Alison, is to very, very elegantly demonstrate and recreate the work of a lovely lady from Canada called Doreen Kimura, who used something called the Dichotic Listening Test to show the dominance of one side of your brain over the other in decoding language. Uh, What you do is you play two different sounds into the right and left ear simultaneously, and specifically you play language, and you ask the person what do you hear or to report what they've been listening to and you'll find they pay much more attention to what's going in their right ear when it's language than in their left ear left ear is better at decoding music and this is because the nervous system is all crossed over so things that go on on the right of you get presented to the left side of your brain, things that go on on the left of you tend to get presented to the right side of your brain so if you feed the language because your music has got lots of spoken words in it into the right ear, most of it's getting presented to your left brain which is where your language centre is so therefore it's preferable to listen via that route. Beautiful question. Uh, Now, Lionel's on the phone for us. Uh, Hello, Lionel. Hello there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Spain. Uh, What can we do for you?
10: Well, uh, my question was related. I've got one of those little um, video cameras that people put on their helmets when they're on their bicycles. And when I watch the video back on the computer, it's all sort of shaky and blurry when it goes from left to right and that sort of thing. And I know um, certain cameras have sort of anti-shake things and shake devices. But um, when, I, when I'm sort of actually living it on my bicycle, I don't sort of see the blur and I don't get sort of all um, queasy because things are moving about. And so my question is, if, if my brain or my head has, has some sort of a anti-shake device as well, that's stopping me from getting all sort of giddy and um, dizzy and that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you can actually find the answer lurking in your inner ear on each side. It's in a system called your vestibular system, and this is your organ of balance. What you have are three tiny Semicircular canals. These are actually smaller than a one penny piece each and they're a tiny canal, they contain fluid and they're orientated at 90 degrees to each other. So you have one which is a hoop towards the front, one which is that at 90 degrees to that, so it's sort of going from one ear to the other and then one like a dinner plate lying flat. And these three together can detect the movement of the head in any direction and the rate of movement. And they send signals via a nerve supply to the brain and they're connected to the nerves that control your movements and so what they do whenever you move your head in any direction This movement is picked up by this vestibular system and it then makes your eyes move in completely the opposite direction at the same rate and amount to directly compensate for the movement of your head. And this is called the vestibulo-ocular reflex and it's the reason that you can hold a finger out in front of you, fix it with your eyes and then shake your head backwards and forwards and maintain a a continuous gaze on your eye without everything looking shaky. And if something goes wrong with that vestibular system, you do feel very giddy because you've lost your own built-in fuzzy logic. Now, if you won for card tricks, uh, Dave's got a terrific one up his sleeve,
2: might win you a few quid if you do this at a party and bet someone. Dave, take it away. This is a slightly unorthodox um, card trick with probably slightly more physics involved than many. Um, For this, you just need two playing cards. In fact, it doesn't really have to be a playing card. You just want a couple of pieces of card about that sort of size. Um, Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop them. I'm not going to start them off in quite the same angle. I'm going to start one off so it's sitting vertically the other one sitting horizontally and i'm going to drop them both at the same time and which one would you expect to hit the ground first so you've got two cards one of them is facing the
1: ground horizontally flat face downwards and the other one's turned side onto the ground they're going to let go at the same time so if they're in a vacuum i'd say well it's penny and feather experiment so they're both hit the ground together so there's got to be something to do with the air that's got to be the trick uh, I would say the one side onto the ground's probably got the least air resistance, so it's going to drop like a stone, I would say, but that will hit the ground first. That does make sense, but we're going to try it, so I'll stand on the chair. That means I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so Dave's climbing on the chair, probably breaking oh. all the health and safety rules in the book in the process. OK, so we've got two cards that are now roughly about six feet above the ground, one side onto the ground, one face to the ground. A bit, okay, bit higher than six feet OK, yeah, we'll yeah. count you in then. Three, two, one, go. Oh, wow. That was pretty dramatic. So the one which was face onto the ground actually hit the ground a long way ahead of the one that was side on to the ground. And the one that was side on actually has done a huge J shape. It sort of curved outwards and swooped away towards where Dominic's sitting.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, The horizontal one is actually remarkably stable. It kind of sits horizontally. And if it Goes slight, if it gets a slight angle, some turbulence hits it, then it gets more lift on the downward side. That pushes it up and it stays horizontal. Sometimes it sort of side slips a bit and drops down a little bit quickly, but it just drops very smoothly and continuously. You're still seeing a lot of air resistance, though, because it's presenting that big flat surface. So it's really surprising it hit the ground ahead of the other one. Yeah. Um, so the other one it was doing something far more interesting. Um, it sort of started to drop, and actually it dropped far, far faster than the other one in the first kind of couple of feet. Yeah, to start with, it did go really quick. Um, And then what happens is that actually it's sitting vertically is very unstable because if it gets slightly off um, vertical, then it produces much more lift at the side, which is at the bottom, which lifts it up and starts it to spin. So once it's spinning, um, actually the tendency to spin, it builds up and it spins really, really quickly. And then once it's spinning, um, it actually starts to produce lift. This is because the air on the side, where, where it's, which is moving up, so moving with the air, the air sticks to that for much longer, actually deflects the air more, so it deflects the air um, with it, whereas the air moving against it, the air doesn't stick to it very well and it doesn't get deflected as much, so it produces lift, which means it starts to move in a J and then it starts to glide downwards and this gliding, this lift it produces slows its drop and so it actually ends up dropping slower than the horizontal one, and it hits the ground second.
1: Terrific, because that's the Coander effect, isn't it? The air sticking to the surface, because the card as it's moving is a bit of a curved surface, so the air sticks onto that surface. And I suppose you see the same sort of science manifest on the cricket pitch, to take a summer analogy, or the football pitch in wintertime, because if you've got a spinning ball, those balls, when they slow down towards the net, suddenly curving is the air gripping the surface of
2: the ball again after the flow becomes laminar. Yeah, Um this is a slightly more complicated case, and I would hate to have to do the maths for it because everything is changing at once. And I think there's actually some effects due to um, the air attaching and disattaching from the surfaces, but it's a very similar effect overall. And you do get this curving and this lift, which causes the ball to bend around into the net, confusing all those poor goalkeepers.
1: So, apart from the the football analogy and the cricket one, are there any other manifestations of this sort of thing going on in nature that people may not have realised that's what
2: they're seeing? I'm sure there are some things in this in nature, but um, and. A similar related one is various people are trying to build wind turbines. The problem with the conventional um, turbine is that if you get gusts from lots of different directions, the turbine isn't pointing in the right direction, so you miss most of the energy from the wind. Whereas people are building vertical axis wind turbines that when the wind blows on them, they naturally start to spin. They're not quite as symmetrical as this, they do it a lot better. And so you can get the energy out of the um, wind, whatever direction it's coming from, and they spin up nicely and you can generate power from them.
1: Oh, I know what you mean. So you have a, a tall sort of column that rotates. So rather than a wind turbine facing into the direction of the oncoming breeze, you have the, effectively the turbine is a long, tall tower that's turning over a very, over a relatively small direction of arc. And in that way, it can extract energy from it wind coming in any direction via that same physics.
2: Exactly. So in the really nasty, messy air, particularly in kind of urban environments, you can get a lot more energy out, even if the turbine is slightly less efficient in the ideal circumstances.
1: That's amazing. Thank you, David. Who'd have thought, Starting with the card trick, you can actually demonstrate how the next generation of wind turbines will get energy from the environment. Thank you, Dave. If you want to see how that experiment works, and Dave's attempt at the mathematics, perhaps, to explain what's going on, nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. Now, talking hard-to-answer questions, Diana O'Carroll's back with our question of the week. This week, washing up cement.
2: My name is Steve Slack, and I'm from Hampshire in England. My question is about Weetabix. I love my Weetabix in the morning. But if I don't clean the bowl straight afterwards, it sticks like glue and won't come off. Why?
1: So what is going on between the cereal and the milk to make this happen?
10: My name is Peter Belton. I'm Professor of Chemistry at the University of East Anglia. The question was, why does cereal stick to plates and cups and so on when it's dry? It's to do with the starch. Starch is essentially a glue so that, like any glue, it will stick things to other things. The reason starch is a glue is that it's a polymer. That means that it's very long, and it has many ways of attaching itself to a surface. So when the cereal's wet, the starch sits on the surface, and as it dries, the polymer gets stiffer, so it's harder and harder to pull the cereal off. When it's very dry it's a bit like a piece of concrete, and so it sticks very hard. If you soak the material and leave it for a while, the polymers will soften up and get to be able to move again and you'll be able to pull them off.
1: And are there any practical applications for this property?
10: Well, it's used in wallpaper paste, for example, and I don't know what children do at school now, but when I was a kid at school, we used to make glue out of starch and water and stick things together with it. I suppose if you're desperate... And you need to stick two things together, a bit of flour and water paste will actually work.
3: So the starch in the Wheatabix is made up of very long molecules. These are suspended in the milk and tangle with each other. But as the milk dries out, the starch settles onto the surface of the bowl, where the parts of the starch molecule wedge themselves into the microscopic nooks and crannies on the bowl's surface. So now not only are they tangled around each other, but they're also hooked into the surface of the bowl... Once it's dry, it's much harder for them to move to untangle themselves, so they form the equivalent of concrete made out of cereal. So if you want to do the washing up without a chisel, you first have to soak the bowl, re-suspending the starch, and then the molecules can move past one another and you can scrub the bowl clean.
1: And next week we discuss some altogether larger forces. Hi,
9: this is Casey from Berkeley, California, United States. I have a question about earthquakes. It seems like there have been an awful lot of big earthquakes lately. Is there some reason there seem to be a lot at once? I live very near the Hayward Fault in the San Francisco Bay Area, so should I really start earthquake-proofing my house and lab now? I love the show. Are earthquakes more common these days? Send your answers to
1: Chris at the com, or write on our forum and that's at the com forward/forum. You can also Facebook us or you can twitter at Naked Scientists. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. And you can catch up with more episodes of Question of the Week via our website, nakedscientist.com slash QOTW, or you can look up Question of the Week as a podcast in its own right on iTunes. We heard on Second Life from Dally Waverider, who was referring to the point that was made about how your eyes compensate for the movements of your body and he says actually if you spin someone round on an office chair and then quickly stop them and look at your eyes then you'll see the phenomenon nystagmus which is the tracking movements that the eyes are making and that's a really nice and elegant way to demonstrate the brain compensating for movements of the body and that's actually what's happening when you're getting giddy actually. Well we've run out of time, I have to say thank you to Dominic and to Dave for their participation this week and to our guest Steve Simpson and Daniel Wagner also to our production team Tom Simpkins, Ben Valsler and- and uh, the guys back at home, Diana Carol, and Sarah Castor-Perry. Next week we're looking at what bugs do for us, the bacteria that live, us, live inside us and on us. What do they do to the food you eat and how do they help to keep us healthy? If you have a perspective or a question, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK FAST. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.